Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Welcome to World Wake Up Live Saturday morning Donahue with you here on KGMI Actually, I'm remote this week, but I'm here And uh, just because we found out that we... uh, have the Mariners game on tomorrow, why we won't be doing our Sunday show as usual. So I'm going to do a little mixture of Saturday and Sunday today. I'm going to start out with my weekly wrap-up for this week in the market registered broad-based losses in this holiday shortened week. The price action in stocks was largely dictated by moves in Apple, market rates, and oil. Some sessions this week featured below average volume as participants remained in vacation mode after Labor Day weekend. Apple declined 6% this week following reports that Chinese officials are being prohibited from using Apple devices. Semiconductor stocks also sold off in sympathy. The PHLX Semiconductor Index fell 3.2%. The news goes beyond Apple and the semiconductor stocks, however. The worry for the market is that if China proposed purposely chooses to make business difficult for a company like Apple, which is a good and important working relationship in China, then they can do it for a lot of other U.S. companies doing business in China. The sharp contrast in oil prices prompted worries about inflation expectations and consumer spending pressures. That understanding contributed to this week's stock sell-off. West Texas Intermediate crude oil futures jumped $1.92, or 2.2%, to 87.47 a barrel. That move follows news that Saudi Arabia and Russia are planning to extend their voluntary oil production cuts of a million barrels per day and 300,000 barrels per day, respectively, through the end of 23. Treasury yields climbed this week as market participants reacted to, to a slate of economic data. The two-year note yield rose nine basis points to 4.97%. 10-year note rose nine basis points also to 4.26%. The ISM services PMI showed that service sector activity accelerated in August, but prices also increased at a faster pace. The latter will be concerning development, presumably for the Fed, which will be contemplating the notion of rates needing to stay higher for longer. Initial jobless claims for the week ending September 2nd were just 216,000. That's the lowest since February, and the second quarter productivity was revised lower to 3.5% from 3.7%, while unit labor costs were revised higher to 2.2% from one6 Only two of the S&P 500 sectors logged a gain. Energy was up 1.4%, utilities up 3 tenths of 1%, industrials were down 29 Information technology down 2.3, materials down 2.5. These are all sectors that declined more than 2%. So looking at the year-to-date numbers up through yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 4.3% for the year. The NASDAQ is up 31.5%. The S&P 500 is up 16.1%. And the Russell 2000 is up 5.1%. We'll go ahead and do our normal high-frequency data report that we do every week. And we saw that initial jobless claims were 216,000, as I mentioned earlier. That was uh, down 5.7%. So that was a drop in jobless claims. Continuing claims are 1,679,000. That was also a drop of 2.3%. Box office receipts as of the week ending September 7th had a little bit of recovery up 2.8%. Rail traffic as of September 1st was up nine-tenths of 1%. We saw steel production down two-tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy down three-and-a-half percent. TSA checkpoint data as of September 7th, 2,283,872 passengers a day. Uh, That's about 200,000 more than what we saw back in 2019. That was also a four-tenths of 1% increase for the week. Supply of motor gasoline as of September 1st was up 2.8%. And global commercial flights as of September 7th, 126,912 a day. That's almost 10,000 higher than it was back in 2019. But that also was a slight decline of 2.8% for the week. 
Now I'm going to go ahead and do my commentary that I typically do Sunday morning and talk a little bit here about fiscal madness. Back in the 1980s, President Reagan took enormous political heat from Sam Donaldson comes to mind for being fiscally irresponsible. His offense presiding over a budget deficit that peaked at 5.9% of GDP in fiscal year 1983. But at least Reagan had an excuse, actually multiple excuses. The unemployment rate averaged 10.1% in fiscal year 1983 while pushing up spending while reducing revenue. The Reagan tax cuts were phased in, so many people pushed off income and taxes into future years. Finally, the U.S. decided to bury the USSR, that's Russia, under massive defensive spending. And the reason we bring this up is that we estimate the budget deficit for this year, fiscal year 23, that ends on September 30th, the end of this month, will be $1.74 trillion, or 6.5% of Joe's domestic product. That's a larger relative to GDP than the largest budget deficit ever under Reagan. Worse? This is happening when the unemployment rate will average about 3.6%, which is the lowest average for any fiscal year in more than 50 years. But the current budget situation is even worse than these numbers suggest. Last year, fiscal 22, the budget deficit came in at $1.375 trillion. But this deficit was artificially boosted by government accounting. President Biden's plan to forgive student loans lifted the deficit by $379 billion. The present value of the extra future losses estimated on the forgiven debt. The government's budget accounting rules included it is an extra spending last year, even though it didn't affect the government's cash flow. In other words, without the Biden loan forgiveness plan, the budget deficit would have been about $996 billion last year, or 4% of GDP. Not good, but not horrible either. This year, the Supreme Court struck down most of the loan forgiveness plan. As a result, extra future loan repayments are now being added back into the budget. The government counts this as a negative outlay, and this change results in a one-time artificial reduction in the deficit of $330 billion. But without that Supreme Court ruling, we would estimate that the budget gap this year would be over $2 trillion to actually $2.07 trillion, or about 7.8% of GDP. These government accounting rules might make sense in normal times, but right now they're leading to a bizarre result that hides a massive increase in the cash flow deficit of the U.S. government. The result is a much bigger change than the official numbers, which will show the budget deficit going from $1.375 trillion, or 5.5% of GDP, to $1.740 trillion, or 6.5% of GDP. There is no economic justification for expanding the cash flow deficit by 3.8 percentage points of GDP from 4% to 7.8%, unless there's a recession or World War III. We've never had a budget greater than 6.5% of GDP in any year from 1950 through 2008. Not one. Reasonable people can disagree about the size and scope of the budget deficits that we have run in the aftermath of the Great Recession as well as during COVID lockdowns. But running a budget deficit this high right now is madness. We are supply-siders. We think the key to long-term economic growth is removing barriers and disincentives to work, save, and invest. We do that with lower tax rates, smaller government, and less regulation. We think that institutions matter, like democracy, property rights, and freedom of contract. We are not Keynesians, we, but even John Maynard Keynes must be rolling over in his grave. No serious or intellectually honest Keynesian can support a deficit of 6.5% of GDP, much less 7.8% in a year when the U.S. is at peace and the unemployment rate is averaging 3.6%. And just as everyone knows, we are not attacking one party over the other. TARP, multiple rounds of quantitative easing, COVID lockdowns, unprecedented fiscal stimulus during covid the repeated failures of both parties to address entitlements have all paved the way for the current deficit bubble. We realize that the U.S. had bigger deficits right after the financial crisis and during COVID, 
But given low unemployment and peacetime, we don't think that we're overdoing it when we say that this year's budget is the most reckless and irresponsible in the history of the republic. We think that the unprecedented surge in the deficit this year is a key reason why a recession is yet to materialize. A surge in the deficit this large can sometimes artificially maintain growth in a very short term. But given higher interest rates on the government debt, this kind of support cannot last. The party continues for now, but we do think that there's a hangover that looms in the future. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. We will be back after a quick break. Thank you for being with us. How do we earn our reputation for repairs you can trust? Great mechanics? Yeah. Quality parts? Absolutely. But the real secret is knowing the most important part of every vehicle is the driver. And here's your keys. She's already Right on time. Thanks. With over 30 years of service, you can trust Bellingham Automotive to help you with any regular maintenance needs or unexpected repairs. Schedule your appointment at 360-676-5200 or visit BellinghamAutomotive.com. DeWard and Bodie's Labor Day deals are around for one final weekend, so don't wait to get the season's biggest savings on the largest selection of appliances, mattresses, barbecues, and more in Whatcom, Skagit, and Island Counties. If you've been waiting for the right deal, now is your chance to score with huge cashback rebates, special no-interest financing, and a 30-day local price match guarantee so you know you're always getting the best price in town. Find huge savings up to 40% off on the best selection of in-stock refrigerators, dishwashers, washers, and dryers. Ranges and cooktops and more. Plus, get huge cashback rebates up to $1,000 on qualifying appliance pairs and packages. And save up to $800 on select mattress sets. Plus, get up to 50% off clearance mattresses in all sizes from top brands. Upgrade today and pay no money down and no interest up to two years on select appliances and up to six years on select mattresses. Shop Labor Day deals now at DeWard and Bodie in Bellingham and Burlington. Financing OAC offer qualifications and restrictions of The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all things were gone, I'd work for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. We're Asset Advisors. Uh, we are located out in the Pacific Commerce Center. That's out next to Wilson Furniture on I-5, north of Bellingham, north of the Slater Road. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number is 360-733-1200. And I'm told by our website people who have done the, be doing the redesign for us that we should be up shortly, I hope, at uh, wealthwakeup.com. Check us out. We hope it pops up this week. Going to keep working on it. Anyway, as I said, I'm combining to today's live show and tomorrow's Sunday show together with some of the format today because of the Mariners game will be on KGMI here tomorrow. So, uh, And, of course, the Seahawks are over on KPUG. So... Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and talk about our global roundup for the week. We're seeing that rebounding bond yields are starting to undermine stocks to a certain degree. The global equities were lower on the week amid a rise in long-term interest rates and concerns that China may be targeting U.S. technology companies in retaliation for U.S. export bans. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note reached 4.3% at midweek before easing to 4.25% on Friday. The price of barrel of West Texas Emory crude oil also rose to 87.60 from 85 last week as Saudi Arabia and Russia extended production cuts. Volatility is measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, rose to 14.5 from 13.3 a week ago. And looking at our macro news, we're seeing that U.S. yields are reversing course. The yield on the 10-year note has risen more than 20 basis points. That would be two-tenths of 1% since last Friday's unemployment report. It reached as high as 4.3% on Thursday as huge amounts of investment-grade corporate issuance came to market after the summer drew to a close on Labor Day. Tuesday alone saw $36 billion in new corporate bond supply come to the market, but supply was not the only factor influencing yields this week. 
Also pushing rates higher was the stronger-than-expected ISM services rating of 54.5. That's the highest level in six months and higher than any forecast in the Bloomberg survey of economists. News that the Saudi Arabia and Russia will maintain their voluntary oil production cuts throughout the year contributed as well, sending the Brent crude above $90 a barrel. Weekly jobless claims at 216,000, that's the lowest weekly number since February, that belied last week's softer U.S. employment report and added to an upside rate of pressures that did upwardly revise U.S. budget deficit projections, which we just talked about. We're also seeing rising rates are lifting the dollar. This week, the U.S. dollar index reached its highest level since March when it peaked just prior to the U.S. regional banking crisis. The surge in the greenback is hindering emerging market stocks and bonds in recent weeks and is contributing to downward pressure on U.S. multinationals with outsized overseas earnings. The strength of the dollar has been particularly notable against Chinese yuan and the Japanese yen. On Thursday, the yuan traded at its lowest level against the dollar since 2006, and the U.S. dollar, JPY, has reached levels close to those reached when the Bank of Japan was forced to intervene to strengthen the yen in October of last year. China and Japan remain monetary outliers, maintaining super leaves in the case of Japan or slightly easier, in China's case, interest rate policies. The surging dollar has limited China's appetite for easing monetary policy for fear of further widening their dollar and supportive rate differentials. And while markets anticipate U.S. policy rates to be near or at a peak, they also expect them to come down slowly, giving the dollar the edge until the U.S. Federal Reserve pivots to a more dovish direction. Japan's Ministry of Defense stepped up verbal intervention this week, warning traders that it would not rule out any options in defending the currency. Wall Street journalists said that U.S. banks are more exposed to real estate than they appear. The Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday that U.S. regional banks are even more exposed to commercial real estate than most of us have thought. Over the past decade, banks have increased their exposure to commercial real estate in ways that aren't usually counted on their tallies, the paper said. As a group, they lent to financial companies that make loans to some of the same uh, uh, real estate borrowers, and they bought bonds backed by the same types of properties. That indirect lending, along with foreclosed properties, trading portfolios, and other assets linked to commercial properties, brings banks' total exposure to commercial real estate to $3.6 trillion, equivalent to about 20% of their deposits, according to journal analysis. We also saw the Fed officials are hinting that September is unlikely to see a rate hike. We've had a number of U.S. monetary policy spoke this week, helping to cement the view that a hike this, this month's FOMC meeting is unlikely. New York Fed President John Williams said Thursday that monetary policy was in a good place, and the sifting through the incoming data will determine whether the policy is sufficiently restrictive enough to return inflation to the Fed's target. A number of Fed targets noted this week that while additional tightening may ultimately be needed, a move at the next meeting isn't necessary. Future markets agreed, pricing in only a 7% chance of a September hike, with the odds of a November hike rising to 46%. And some of our quick hits for the week, the European investor sentiment slipped in September to its lowest level since July of 2020, falling to minus 21.5 from minus 18.5 in August. We also saw that President, Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to skip this weekend's G20 summit in New Delhi and would have seen as a snub to India over recent border clashes between the two nations. Goldman Sachs said that the odds of a U.S. recession unfolding in the next 12 months have fallen to 15%. The firm's peak odds of recession were 35% in March. The Committee for Responsible Federal Budget which is an organization that pushes for lower U.S. federal deficit, is projecting that the deficit will double this year, reaching about $2 trillion for the fiscal year that ends September 30th. Contributing to the rise in the deficit are higher interest costs, lower tax revenues, higher inflation resulting in higher Social Security and Medicare costs. We did just talk about the budget issues in this first half today, actually, first segment. 
also saw that sitting Fed Governor Philip Jefferson's elevation to vice chair was confirmed in the U.S. Senate with a vote of 488 to 10. Adriana Cougar was confirmed as the governor by a vote of 53 to 45. And the Fed's Beige Book reported that U.S. economic growth was modest over the summer, though tourism spending was stronger than expected. And while hiring slowed, labor market imbalances persisted. The report showed that while price pressures slowed overall. And August's trade data from China were better than feared, but still reflected weak global domestic demand. Outbound shipments declined 8.8% from a year earlier. China's General Administration of Customs said on Thursday, the reading narrowed from the 14.5% year-over-year drop in exports in July, which marked the worst fetch results since February 20. Imports in China fell 7.3% in August from a year earlier, less than, 12, less than July's 12.4% drop. And China's share of U.S. imports fell 14.7% year-over-year in July. That's the lowest level in 17 years. The Census Bureau reported that's down from a peak share of 22% just before the U.S. trade war began in 2018. And the Financial Accounting Standards Board voted unanimously to adopt a new standard that would require U.S. businesses to use fair value accounting for Bitcoin and certain other crypto assets. We also saw the Bank of Canada held its rate steady at 5% as expected. Canada reported nearly 40,000 new jobs in August, while the unemployment rate held steady at 5.5%. This is Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break for our news and all the other good things we do here at the bottom of the hour. We'll be back with the rest of Wealth Wake Up Live after that. Thanks for being with us. Wilson's Furniture Labor Day sale is on, and what a better way to reward all your labor this year than with a new mattress, a Serta iComfort Eco mattress, to be precise. And you can save up to $900 on an adjustable base Serta iComfort mattress during Wilson's Labor Day sale, taking a load off your back and your budget. And that's not all you'll find during the Labor Day sale at Wilson's. There are savings to be found throughout the showroom, dining, living room, and bedroom. In the patio department, you'll find end-of-the-season blowout pricing on the biggest selection of patio furniture north of Seattle. Football season is here and Wilson's has a big selection of sectionals, motion furniture for any size room or man cave. And at Wilson's Furniture, if a piece of furniture is on the showroom floor, it's available to take home that day. Of course, Wilson's will also happily special order a piece for you. Don't miss out on the savings you'll find right now at Wilson's. Online 24-7 at wilsonhomefurnishings.com. Get a bite of Chicago with PNW Perks this week. You can score $50 to spend at Chicago Joe's for just $25 this Thursday at PNWPerks.com. When you're ready for the best hot dogs around, you just got to head up the guide to Linden and stop by Chicago Joe's. Chicago Joe's features traditional Chicago-style hot dogs, savory Italian beef sandwiches, and local favorite underground burgers. Why settle for just some old hot dog when you can kick back and enjoy a Chicago dog loaded with with sweet pickle relish, pickles, sport peppers, tomatoes, chopped onions, and sprinkled with celery salt. Each bite is a taste of the Windy City right here in our backyard. Stop by Chicago Joe's in Linden on the Guide Meridian. Call ahead for takeout or visit chicagojoeslinden.com to check out the menu. With PNW Perks, you can get a $50 certificate to Chicago Joe's and enjoy the flavor of the Windy City for just $25. Get the details at pnwperks.com. Hi, this is Bruce Child from Bellingham. I just won $1,000 on the grand in your hand. In fact, Bruce won by listening to KGMI. They're a wonderful station. You could be next. Just listen for our $1,000 keyword each weekday during the 8 a.m., 11 a.m., 2 p.m., and 5 p.m. hours. Enter before midnight at KGMI.com. It's that easy. Thank you so much. You don't know how much this means right now. KGMI wants to put a grand in your hand next. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Harness the power of the sun, reduce your carbon footprint, and save on your energy bills. You can now go solar with West Mechanical Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. 
CBS News Brief. A massive earthquake in Morocco. The number of dead has now grown to over once. CBS's Bradley Blackburn. The airport was jammed as many tried to get out of a major tourist destination. The room started shaking. It was going backwards and forwards and everything started moving and pictures started moving. Hurricane Lee was a Category 5 storm, but has weakened. Lee is a Category 3 hurricane with wind speeds near 115 miles per hour. Lisa Bucci with the National Hurricane Center. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows wanted his Georgia election interference case moved from state to federal court, arguing his actions were just part of his job. A judge disagreed. What the judge said here is, Essentially, I think you acted outside the scope of your duties. I think that you went beyond what is in the job description of a chief of staff. That's CBS News legal analyst Jessica Levinson. CBS News Brief. I'm Stacey Lynn. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American. Welcome back to Welcome Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. As I mentioned earlier, no Sunday show tomorrow. Mariners games will be on KGMI. So I'm doing a little bit of a combination of what I would normally do on the Saturday and Sunday shows. Going to continue on with this week's economic reports that we came in, including the July International Trade Report. And the trade deficit in goods and services rose to $65 billion in July as imports expanded faster than exports. We prefer to focus on the total volume of trade, imports plus exports, as it represents the extent of business and consumer interactions across the U.S. border. This measure expanded by $9.1 billion in July, but remains down 4.2% versus a year ago. And all the growth in July is positive. Both imports and exports are down on a year-ago basis, consistent with our forecast that the U.S. is headed towards a recession. And while a surge in the federal budget deficit might have helped the U.S. economy avoid the recession in the short term, this kind of artificial support cannot last. Despite the monthly increase, imports are sitting near their lowest level since June 2021 indicating weakening demand for goods domestically as there is a continuing trend towards spending on services. So far this year, imports from China are down 24.8% versus the same time frame a year ago, dropping China from first to third largest exporter to the U.S. behind Mexico and Canada. Daily freight rates have fallen rapidly, are back down to pre-COVID levels or even lower as demand for shipping has also weakened. This was with this was confirmed by the New York Fed's Global Supply Chain Pressure Index in July, with the index staying in negative territory. 0.90 standard deviations below the index's historical average. Weaker demand, coupled with easing of part shortages and less shipping congestion, with, uh, uh, have pulled the indicator lower. The most positive piece in the report was that the U.S. dollar of U.S. petroleum exports exceeding imports once again. This is the 17th consecutive month of the U.S. being a net exporter of petroleum products. In other recent news, cars and light trucks have sold at a 15 million annual rate in August. That is down 4.5% from July, but it's still up about 13.6% from a year ago. We also had the August Institute of Supply Management's non-manufacturing index report come out this week, and the activity in the services sector accelerated in August as the headline index increased to a six-month high with 13 of 18 major industries reporting growth, beating out even the most optimistic forecast. Contrast this with the August ISM report on the manufacturing sector, where activity contracted for the 10th month of row and only five industries reported growth. Output is clearly shifting back towards services following the COVID era when goods-related activity was artificially boosted. There is plenty to like in this report on the services sector. Business activity and new orders, which are the two forward-looking categories, both rose in August and sit comfortably in expansion territory. Notably, respondents cited a post-pandemic environment 
that has led to higher levels of activity than even they had anticipated. Meanwhile, the demand for labor in the services sector remains strong, with the employment index jumping to its highest level since 2021. Respondent comments continued to signal the lack of supply, not demand, that has been held back service jobs from moving higher. On the supply chain front, the Supplier Deliveries Index, which is contracted for the seventh month in a row, signaling a shorter lead times for businesses. Despite easing supply chains, inflation remains a problem in the services sector. The prices index rose to 58.9 in August, with 12 industries reporting paying higher prices in the month. We expect that the services sector to keep inflation trending above the Fed's 2% target for some time. As for the economy, even though services are still expanding, we continue to believe that a recession is on its way. Equity investors need to remain cautious as we navigate through what we think are some pretty unprecedented times. And we got a report out this week regarding U.S. home sale applications, and they have fallen to the lowest level since 1995. A gauge of U.S. mortgage applications for home purchases fell to a 28-year low this last week, underscoring the stifling effect of high mortgage rates on buyer demand. Mortgage Bankers Association's index of home price applications decreased 2.1% to 141.9. That's the lowest level since April of 1995, according to data out on Wednesday. The contract rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage dropped 10 basis points to 7.21% in the weekend of September 1st, but remains near its highest level in decades, including a decline in refinancing activity. The overall measure of mortgage demand fell 2.9% to nearly a 27-year low. High mortgage rates have pushed homeownership further out of reach for many Americans. They've driven housing affordability to its worst point in decades. Meantime, borrowers with pandemic-era low mortgage rates are loath to give them up, crimping inventory and keeping upward pressures on home prices, which is compounding the issue. Newly constructed homes have filled some of the supply gap, but it's difficult to see any sustained reprieve for potential homeownership until borrowing costs subside. Even then, though the ensuing pickup in demand threatens to boost prices even higher. The Federal Reserve, however, doesn't appear to be cutting interest rates anytime soon. Policymakers have not only indicated that borrowing costs may need to go higher, but they also said that rates will need to remain high in order to tame inflation. The survey, which was conducted weekly since 1990, uses responses from mortgage bankers, commercial banks, and thrifts. The data cover more than 75% of all retail residential mortgage applications in the United States. Of course, all these constraints that we have on supply out there as far as, you know, material supply and things like these things are not necessarily helping any of this either because we're not able to build and then you get into all your zoning regulations and all the restrictions that we have on new construction. Uh, It's going to continue to be a problem regardless. So, it's uh, something I don't think is real pretty right now. Okay, let's talk about Medicare Part D. That's your prescription drug program. We're going to see some changes made next year, 2024, to the prescription drug program. As the fourth quarter of this quarter re- uh, approaches, Medicare beneficiaries can expect to phase in changes resulting in the Inflation Reduction Act. These changes are largely in favor of Medicare Part D beneficiaries. Medicare Part D has made headlines recently due to attention from the Inflation Reduction Act, allowing drug price negotiations. The federal government is making efforts to lower drug prices after inflation-related cost rises and a report from the Kaiser Family Foundation revealing that just 10 drugs accounted to about $48 billion in Medicare Part D spending in 2021. What we call the Extra Help Program will expand next year as another attempt to make prescription drugs more affordable. The previous cutoff based on income will be increased, allowing more people to be eligible. According to the National Council on Aging, nearly 3 million people are eligible for extra help program but are not enrolled. So considering the program's expansion, 
You need to explore your eligibility and take advantage of it if it's possible. In addition to broadening eligibility for extra help program, changes are going to be made to the catastrophic coverage. Individuals enter Medicare's catastrophic phase once they've accrued more than $7,400 in out-of-pocket expenses. Previously, Medicare Part D beneficiaries would still be responsible for 5% of the cost. However, in 2024, that number will also drop down to zero. So we're going to see a change in some of those bills and some of those costs that you're seeing out there as far as your Medicare costs. And I had an IRA question here about what about is what's the the minimum distribution for people who were born in 1959. A lot of confusion here with the laws. Basically, the guy said, I was born in 59. When do I have to take my first required minimum distribution from my IRA? By April 1st of the year, following the year that I reached 72, or is it 73, is it 74, or is it 75? Well, it makes a difference. His birth date is in August. And he said his friends with birth dates in May, June, and July, and October are also wondering what's correct. He wanted some clarity. Well, the Secure 2.0 law that was passed over a year ago now delayed the first required minimum distribution from age 72 to 73 for some people. And those that were young enough went from 72 to 75. And, and so basically those people that don't hit 75 until, you know, until 2033, 32, somewhere in there. Anyway, those born in 59, the law was mistakenly drafted so that it would have the first two years, RMD years, at age 73 and 75. Well, Congress is going to have to fix this glitch and say that people born in 1959 must take their RMD by April 1st of the year after they turn 73. So technically, somebody turns 73, you do have that extra time frame where you can hold up until April 1st of the following year. problem with that one is you've got to take two distributions in one year. And birth month does not matter. All that matters is the year that you're born. So the question I had from this guy about the month he was born, that was basically irrelevant to the problem. What, what counts is the year you're born, and uh, that's what you have to take a look at when you're going out there and calculating when do you have to start taking those RMDs. This is Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up Live here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Thank you for being with us today. Attention homeowners, this is John Barron from Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. And I'm Brad Barron, CEO with some exciting news. Barron is offering free precision tune-ups and 50% off service memberships to homeowners. As a family-owned and operated business for over 50 years, we strive to be just that, a family you can count on. The areas we serve are growing fast, and the call for HVAC, electrical, and plumbing has never been higher. The Barron Technician School helped us grow to over 30 licensed HVAC service technicians, ready to help 24-7. Our strength and trades partnerships paved the way to Barron's new upfront pricing. Our customers can now easily weigh their options that meet their budget. Our commitment remains the same, improving lives in our community. If you called us over the past three years and we are at capacity, please know we were as disappointed as you. Because of this, we're offering a free precision tune-up and 50% off service memberships to new customers now through September 30th, just to give us another try. Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. Our mission, improving lives. Do you have a lawnmower, a tractor, construction equipment? If so, you need to visit Meridian Equipment in Laurel. Meridian Equipment is a family business that services and sells all makes and models of agricultural construction and material handling equipment. They have the oils, fluids, and hardware that you need. Need a battery? They stock Interstate and Optima batteries for everything from heavy-duty off-road to lawn and garden. Meridian Equipment, open weekdays from 8 to 5 and Saturdays from 8 till noon on Guide Meridian in Laurel. Psst. Psst. Hey. Psst. Hey, you. No, no, it's not your phone. It's me, the radio. Turn me up. You need to hear this. Looking for new furniture or a new mattress? Box Drop is the spot. Box Drop always offers 30 to 80% off retail prices on brand new furniture and mattresses with easy financing available. Stop by in Sequoia Drive off Cordata Parkway or find Box Drop Bellingham on social media. Comfort and style awaits at Box Drop Bellingham. Delivery available. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the U.S. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. As always, if you got questions for me, feel free to give me a call. 360-733-1200. 
Okay, well, I've mentioned a lot about Ed Slot for years and a member of his elite advisor IRA group. We're actually in our 20th year. We meet twice a year, two days a week, or two days twice a year, <coughs> doing nothing but talking about IRAs and IRA rules and rule changes and all these other things. And uh, this week, uh, Ed actually did a presentation where he put focus on what we call the six big IRA changes for this for this year. And basically, he said that the tax rules applied to retirement accounts in the U.S. are always changing. And um, he said that while no major tax bills have been passed so far this year by Congress, but the IRS is still in the process of digesting and issuing rules based on the last two pieces of leg- retirement legislation signed in law, the 2019 SECURE Act and last year's SECURE 2.0. He says, when you're coming into, uh, coming into this uh, fourth quarter, he said, believe it or not, we're doing this on a day that football starts. And you'll know what happens in the fourth quarter. It all hits at one time. So look out for the fourth quarter of this year. The IRS has recently handed down at least six key rulings clarifying what IRA owners, tax professionals, and as we as advisors need to do in light of the recent loss and product innovations. First of all, RMDs from inherited IRAs. This has really become a very confusing issue for us. After they passed uh, in 2017, the original SECURE Act was, for most part, did away with what we called the stretch IRA for inherited traditional IRAs. Under this rule, required minimum distributions from inherited traditional IRAs could have been calculated based on the beneficiary's life expectancy which significantly lowered the amount required to be distributed annually from the account. Well, basically, it would have allowed the beneficiary to take that out over their own life expectancy going ahead. Well, the SECURE Act instead applied a new 10-year rule for most IRA beneficiaries for accounts inherited when the original owner had died on or before January 1st of 2020. Under this rule, the new owner has 10 years to empty the assets from the inherited account unless they fall, and there's five special categories of what we call eligible designated beneficiaries. But people, uh, you know, like you said, aren't, aren't so bad like me, but because it's, it, they, have, they have no R&Ds, they don't have to worry. But you could just take everything out at the end of the 10th year. So we thought that was the case where they could say, okay, fine, I'll just let it sit for 10 years, take the money out. But in early 2022, the IRS, IR, the IRA, IRS released proposed regulations, and they're still talking about it. And they, now they said, not so fast on the 10-year rule. The proposed regulations would require annual required distributions to be taken from those inherited IRAs if the original account owner is already required to have been, been taking it. So if the account owner was over the RMD age, was 70 and now 72, it started taking money, then they were restricted and they had to use that 10-year rule. But the proposal created so much confusion about what was supposed to take the distributions and how the distributions would be calculated that the IRS has actually issued relief for RMDs required to be taken from IRS in 21, 22, and now in 23. The IRS, he said, is basically won't penalize you if you haven't taken it, which in essence means that you don't have to be taken. This is now the rule for 23 for those inherited 2020 or later. So up until now, if you did not take any RMDs out, you're okay. You're not going to be penalized for that. Uh, Just because the IRS can't seem to get, they can't seem to look at the law and figure out what's going on. They can't seem to get their ruling straight. But if you talk about RMDs, 23 is a special year because Secure 2.0 extends the required beginning date, as we said earlier, from 72 to 73. However, the law extending the required beginning date was passed in December of 22. That meant that a lot of IRA owners had already received notification from their advisors or their firms, their brokerage firms, that they had to be taken this year. <clears throat> Due to that confusion, the IRS has also provided relief allowing IRA owners to return the required minimum distribution. So if you took out a distribution earlier this year because you thought you had to, you actually can put that back in. And so 
uh, is simply because uh, technically you did not have to take that one in 72 at age 72. And so they've now allowed people to go ahead and put the thing back in because they, it is now 73. Second piece on this is the Secure 2.0 uh, annuity aggregation rule. This is kind of a uh, not something we've run into a lot, but Section 204 of the Secure Act changes the way distributions from annuities that are held in IRAs are calculated relative to the IRA owner's minimum distribution. Uh, before Secure 2.0, if you had an annuity within an IRA, it was if you had a separate account or separate IRA. Whatever the payout from that annuity was, it satisfied the RMD from the IRA, but it could not be used to satisfy the RMDs from other IRAs. Now it can. So before this, basically, if you had an annuity, you couldn't take excess money out of that and not take money out of other IRAs. Well, they turned around and changed that. So now RMDs can be aggregated among all IRAs of your accounts, including annuities. So basically, you add up all your accounts, you figure out what the RMD is, you can take it out of any one of those. So the total RMD for all your IRAs is calculated, let's say it's 35000 you have an annuity that pays out 30000 you can take all that 35000 if you want to out of that annuity now. Third one was the Roth 401k catch-up mess, another major change in Secure 2 attempts to put more uh, raise more tax revenue by requiring higher earners, those who make more than 145000 wages from the single employer, to take, make any annual 401k catch-up contribution. So basically, you have this catch-up rule if you're over age 50. Well, the IRS, the, the, the Secure 2.0 was going to require that that go into a Roth account, which meant that you had to pay it with after-tax money. And the uh, the financial institutions said, hey, wait a minute, this is effective in January of 24. There's no way that we can get the updated plans and amendments out for tens of millions of employers in that time. So the IRS said that they're going to provide us two more years relief until, and it's not going to be effective next year. And high wage owners probably will be have to avail themselves to the Roth 401k anyway. It's just a matter of when that's going to kick in. We're also seeing what we call the surviving spouse 327 election. For the first time in many years, the Secure 2.0 is changing rules for surviving spouse who inherit IRAs. Congress has always been kind to the surviving spouse, but for some reason Congress got involved with Secure 2.0 and put in one or two sentences that caused mass confusion for the surviving spouse. Under Rule 327, uh, the surviving spouse can choose to be treated as they were, they were the deceased spouse for the purposes of IRA distributions. If a 327 election is made, the surviving spouse can begin RMDs when the deceased found owner would have reached RMDH. Uh, there's the crazy part about it. People who benefit from it are minority or surviving spouses or the younger spouse who dies first, and that rarely happens. So now surviving spouses age 59 and a half or older, they have got three options when inheriting an IRA. One, you can roll it over into your name. You can remain a beneficiary under the own age and, and beginning date, or you can use your spouse's required beginning date and make that 327 election. It is likely the IRS is going to delay this rule as well, which is slated to go into effect next year. We're also seeing charitable gift annuities become a factor. Starting this year, Secure 2.0 allows IRA owners to put up to $50,000 from the IRA into a gift annuity, what we call a, a gift annuity, the uh, charitable gift annuity. It acts as the tax-free lifetime income gift to a charity. The IRA can designate themselves or another spouse as income beneficiaries. The income from that annuity is treated as ordinary income. Well, the IRS has clarified that these charitable gift annuity uh, contributions has to all happen within the same year. If an account owner contributed 30000 in one year, and say this year they cannot contribute the remaining 20000 in a future year, furthermore, like the charitable uh, contribution or QCD, uh, the charitable gift annuity is only available for account holders that are 70 and a half and older. And uh, uh, most IRAs, the required beginning date is 73. Uh, it's not an investment. It could end up making a poor investment for those who want to give to charity and get a tax break out of it, according to SLOT. It's a pretty good move. For those who normally give to charity, it is something to look at. Then we also found some interesting things regarding what we call non-fungible tokens. Um, he basically warned against using non-fungible tokens or in, IR, in RIAs 
these and non-fungible tokens is a unique digital token that usually gives the holder rights to something like access to an event, artwork, or collectibles. You can pretty much invest IRA funds into anything but collectibles, life insurance, and S-corporation stock, said Slot. In recent years, some investors have started putting NFTs in their traditional IRAs to enjoy the token's growth and value while deferring uh, or eliminating taxes on their gains. In March of this year, the IRS issued Notice 2327, clarified that non-fungible tokens will be treated within IRAs specifically. If an IRA confers rights to a collectible piece of art, the IRS would consider it a prohibited investment. So something just to keep your eye on. A lot of people out there pushing this kind of stuff. People, you got to be really careful with some of these ads that you're seeing in radio, on TV, all this other stuff. Check it out. Don't just take what you're seeing and hearing. I don't have time to sit here and get into more detail on this today, but just be careful when you go out there and you start hearing some of these ads and some of the stuff that you're seeing that's trying to get you to put money where, oh, yes, it's all IRS approved. It may not be IRS approved, and it may not be right. It may not be legal. And if it does, it could be a distribution to you, and it could mean that you have to pay taxes on that money. This has been Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. I want to thank you for listening to us today. If you've got questions for me, you can always give me a call, 360-733-1200. I would say listen to our 9 o'clock show tomorrow morning, but once again, because of the Mariners game, uh, we have been preempted. So this today has been kind of a combo show. But we'll be back next weekend with more Wealth Wake Up Live. So, again, questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. voiced on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.